But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Father, we come to you today because we need to hear from you because our hearts and our experience is often that of Moses and the Israelites. We encounter disappointments and frustrations and discouragements. And we need the anecdote that you provided for them. A revelation of yourself. A commitment of yourself to them. And so I pray as we study this passage together today that you would open our eyes to, to receive the truth of who you are. That we would recognize who you are. That we would believe what you have said about yourself. That we would believe the promises that you have made to us. And that our belief in those promises would lead to an unshakable confidence that would move us beyond the, the disappointments and discouragements and frustrations, but would move us on into a place of joy and satisfaction in you. So come, Holy Spirit, and 
minister the truth of this passage, the truth of God's word to our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that repetition aids learning. Or perhaps if you have played a sport or a musical instrument, you've heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. And I remember it being in school and, and taking music lessons, this was often just a perceived as just a, a, a good excuse by the teacher to get you to practice. Go over and over that section of that, that musical piece or practice that athletic skill over and over. The point of these sayings, and, and in many ways they're, they're true, is that repeating something over and over again helps not only in our retention of information, but the practicing of a skill over and over again helps us toward the goal of performing it well without having to think about it. So whether you're a basketball player shooting hundreds of free throws so that you can make those key free throws at the end of a game, or a golfer who swings a thousand times a day so you can repeat that swing without thinking about it and hit the ball straight. I'm still working on that skill. Or whether you're a pianist practicing that song over and over again, that section over and over again, so that you can do it in the concert without thinking about it, without making a mistake. It's the repetition of that skill. The repetition of, of loading that information in our head that, that helps us learn. I remember in college as I was studying Greek, one of the ways in which we remembered vocab words was to, to write them on cards so that we could just go over and over them again. So that we just got to the point where we see a word and we know what it means. And you just repeat that over and over again. And this idea of repetition came to my mind as I, as I read through this section of, of the book of Exodus. And, and many of the things we read in, in this section from, from the beginning of chapter 6 through verse 7 of chapter 7 are, are themes and things that we've already, we've already seen, not only in, in the book of Exodus, but even going back into the book of Genesis. These are themes that we've already, we already know to be true. So the question is, why are they repeated here? And I'm sure you'll agree that in Scripture, there, there is no unnecessary repetition. God didn't repeat things just for the sake of repeating things. There, it's repeated for a purpose. And I think that what we see in this text is that Moses, the children of Israel, and yes, even us, need to be reminded over and over again of, of, of certain things. Because as we read this first section of, of chapter 6, maybe you could identify with Moses' experience. Maybe you could identify with the children of Israel's attitude. Because we often, like Moses and the children of Israel, need to be reminded of certain things. 
And what we find in, in this section of, of Exodus is that despite Moses' belief to the contrary, despite the children of Israel's belief to the contrary, and, and often despite our belief to the contrary, God graciously reminds us that he remains faithful and sovereign. He remains faithful to his covenant. He remains faithful to his chosen servants. And he remains sovereign over Pharaoh and Egypt. And he remains sovereign over all the other enemies that we encounter. So first I want us to notice that God remains faithful to his covenant. The first reminder that God provides to Moses and to us is that God remains faithful to his covenant. That's the point of the first 13 verses of chapter 6. You see, chapter 5 ends with two verses expressing Moses' clear frustration with God. Look back at the end of chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. You remember chapter 5, Moses went before Pharaoh and, and not only didn't receive a favorable response, but received added punishment, added oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. And Moses' sense of bitterness here is so strong that he, he attributes evil to God's motives. He asked the Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Thinking that God has in some way intentionally brought trouble on his people. He even despairs to the point of doubting whether or not God will actually follow through and deliver his people from their bondage to the Egyptians. Moses assumes here that since God didn't deliver his people... They were, with, they were now without any hope of freedom. And how does God respond to Moses' disappointment and frustration? I mean, think, think about Moses' situation here. He, is, he has come from Exodus chapter 3, what we might call a mountaintop experience. He was on the mountain, encountered God at the burning bush, was called by God to go back to Egypt to lead God's people out of slavery into the promised land. And I'm sure in that moment after Moses' objections, he, he went back with a measure of confidence in the Lord. And yet, at the first sign of trouble and continued opposition, he just he gives up hope. He goes back to the Lord, complaining to the Lord about the way God has dealt with his people. And how does God respond? Well, a couple observations. First, God does not respond by laying out for Moses what God is thinking, his rationalization for causing to happen what has happened to the people of Israel. He doesn't give Moses a defense of, of his actions toward the people. Instead, what God does is stating again that this deliverance was not an act that Moses would accomplish. This was an act that God alone could accomplish. It would take an act of God to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. 
I don't mean to say that God necessarily set Moses up to fail in this situation. But it's, it's as if God wanted to get Moses to this point that we see at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 6. When he tells Moses, okay, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. It's almost as if, in a sense, God has brought Moses to the end of, of his own ability. We know Moses was pretty close to being to the end of his ability back when God called him. But now God takes it a step further, wanting Moses to understand that this was going to be an act of God. And so rather than explain to Moses what he was doing, God simply reaffirms for Moses the covenant that he had made with his people. And several times in these verses that we've just read, you, you noticed God's repeated statement that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And as God reaffirms his faithfulness to his covenant, he is tying the fulfillment of this covenant to his very character. He wants Moses to understand and remember that his very name is at stake here. God's, God's name is at stake in the fulfillment of this covenant. If he does not follow through, God is a liar. And he wants Moses to understand. You remember back in Genesis when God made this covenant with Abraham. Do you remember the imagery? We studied this in Genesis. you remember the imagery? you remember what God did when he made this covenant with Abraham? What did he do? He swore by his own name because there was, there was nothing else higher that he could swear by. God's very name, God's very character was at stake in the fulfillment of this covenant. And the point to Moses, the point to us is to understand that when God makes a promise, God will keep it. He will follow through. So what we need, what Moses need, what the children of Israel needed, what we need, is not to necessarily understand why God is doing certain things, why, why certain things happen to us, why God leads us down certain paths. What we need to understand, what we need to remember is that God is faithful to his covenant. God is faithful to his people. Let's read again verses 6 and 7. I think these, listen, listen to the, the, the phrases that God uses. Listen to the imagery of, of God calling a people for himself. His message to the people of Israel was this, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I love this verse 7. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God said earlier that when he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he appeared as, as God Almighty. He says, by my name, Yahweh, I did not reveal myself to them or did not make myself known to them. And as we saw back earlier in the book of Exodus, I don't, I don't think the name Yahweh was unknown to the patriarchs, unknown to those in the book of Genesis. But I think God's point here is he is, he is expanding the revelation of himself to his people. He is, he is a covenant God. Yes, they knew the name Yahweh. They worshipped God as Yahweh. But now they were understanding who Yahweh was for them. He was going to be their redeemer. 
He was their covenant God. He was going to be their rescuer. The one who would take them as his people. He was expanding their understanding of who who God is. The problem for us, the problem for the children of Israel was that we often add to the promises of God our own expectations of of what we think that will look like, what, how we think God will, will act toward us. And we build up in our, our minds an expectation of, of what God is going to do for us. I mean, you can almost imagine Moses as he journeyed back to Egypt. I know it would go through my mind as he rehearsed what he was going to say before Pharaoh. And you could, you could just imagine Moses building up this expectation of, going before Pharaoh and, and God working to, to deliver his people. And yet that's not what happened. Instead, there, the, the oppression was intensified. And the people who at the end of chapter 4 believed what Moses and Aaron told them about God's deliverance, now come in chapter 6, verse 9, they, now they, they're not listening to Moses. Because their spirit is broken and they're experiencing harsh slavery. They've gone from believing Moses and Aaron, believing that that God was going to accomplish great things for them, to now not listening to Moses because of the harsh slavery. You see, we often share in this same sort of discouragement and disappointment that Moses and the people experience. We often doubt God's goodness when our expectations of the fulfillment of God's promises doesn't happen. And what we need is exactly what God provides for Moses here. We need a reminder of who God is. You see, God has given us this book. This is not just a book of of nice stories about people that lived a long time ago. This is a story about God. This is God's self-revelation to us. And what we need to see... What we need to understand is who he is. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. We need to get our, our perspective away from, from our vantage point and turn our eyes to, to God, Yahweh, the Lord, who has promised to take us to be his people. Are there not times when we, like the, the Israelites, like Moses, experience this same thought process? Perhaps you, you have been tempted to doubt God when you take a step of faith, believing God to, to be leading you to do something. And you take that step of faith fully believing that, that God will provide, that God will bless and and then your efforts just fall apart. Nothing happens. It's as if God was, God was never working in the first place. And we're tempted to, to blame God when things don't work out the way that we expected. Or maybe you doubt God's saving work in you and instead feel your own sense of unworthiness and failings. And forget about God's promise to overcome all of that 
in the gospel, in saving you. As we met on Thursday night, as we do each week, uh, the, the elders, the preaching team, this question came up, and I think it's a, it's a worthy question for us to ask ourselves in, in situations like this. When we find ourselves despairing at, at what God has seemingly brought upon us and forget what God has done for us, we should ask ourselves this question. What am I not believing that I should be believing? What am I not believing about God right now that I should be believing about God? Maybe specifically, it's what promise of God am I not believing right now? What promise of God do I know from His Word, but yet I am not experientially believing? I'm not apprehending it right now. Instead, I'm, I'm looking at my own experience and I feel as if God has abandoned me. What am I not believing right now that I should be? And throughout all of this, throughout all of Moses' continued objections here, the fact that he, the people haven't listened to him, God hasn't delivered his people yet, God never gives in to Moses. God continues just to remind him of who God is and continues to, to command him to go to, to, go to go to Pharaoh. Go with this message, deliver the people. Send the people out of your land. Free them from their slavery. God's charge to Moses and Aaron did not waver despite their objections. God didn't relent to the complaints of Moses, to the disappointment of Moses. Instead, he wanted Moses, and he wants us to come to understand his faithfulness and to experience that faithfulness through their obedience to his call for them. Understanding, and we're going to see a little bit later on, that, that God, God works in, in ways that are different than, than we can even comprehend. But what we need in, in times like this is just a reminder of, of God, a reminder of who He is, a reminder of His promises. So when you experience this sense of, of, of discouragement and, and disappointment, frustration, the place to go is God's Word. The place to go is, is to seek and, and find Him. Seek to understand who He is and what He has promised. Remembering that, that He promises to do things not according to our expectations, but He promises to work according to His plan. We need to, we need to, to know God. We need to understand His promises and, and, and believe His promises. To internalize His promises. So God reminds Moses that he remains faithful to his covenant. God has not forgotten the promise that he made. God's very character was at stake in the fulfillment of that promise. And so Moses, as it were, could take it to the bank that God was going to follow through. But God reminds Moses and, and, and really reminds us, actually, in this section, that he remains faithful to his chosen servants. This next section of 
of chapter 6 is a, a genealogical section. And I won't take time to read the whole thing. But when we come across the genealogy in the Bible, we're, you know, we tend to wonder why, why is this included? And certainly I found myself asking, why is this included right here? It's almost as if the story just breaks off and, and bam, we have, an, we have a, a genealogy here. It, just, it doesn't seem to fit. But the original readers of, of this book, the, the Hebrew readers, for them, genealogies were a big deal. They were highly significant. And for them, this would have been a very important section of this book of Exodus as it was written down and read to them as they stood on the brink of entering the promised land, receiving this book written by Moses and including here this genealogy. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of that generation, and recall that God, at that point, they understand that God has been faithful to deliver His people. Because they're sitting on the brink of the promised land. They're no longer in Egypt, in slavery to, to Pharaoh. They understand that God has been faithful. They're able to see it from the other side. And what this genealogy does, just as it, as it relates to the, the flow of the narrative, is it, it first legitimizes the role of Moses and Aaron as God's spokesman to his people. It's almost as if we're reading this story and we're, we're feeling along with Moses, his frustration, and then we have this genealogy and we understand that God had in fact called the, these men to be his servants. God, God had worked. God had, had brought them out of these families, this lineage, to use them. These, these were men legitimately called by God to fulfill this role. And I think certainly Moses would be writing this 40 years later after the fact, but even as he records his own question, we read it in verse 12 when he objects to God that how will Pharaoh listen to me? I am of uncircumcised lips. And he says the same thing at the end of this section in verse 30. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And it seems that that in the midst of this genealogy, Moses is connecting his, his objection back to his experience in chapter 4 where God threatened to kill him. God sought to kill him because of his incomplete obedience, his lack of, of total buy-in to the, the, the purpose and plan of God. And it's almost as if Moses here is intimating that he is not useful to God at this point because in the Old Testament, this idea of circumcision is, is that which is set apart for God. Those that were circumcised were those set apart for God. Moses is essentially saying that God was not using him because he was not set apart for him by using this imagery of uncircumcised lips. But here... 
in this genealogy, we, we, we understand that God had in fact raised them up. He had in fact set them apart through their families. And again, I think for us, we, we miss a bit of the significance of this just because we don't, we don't understand the same, or we don't, we don't hold these, this lineage to the same degree that, that they would have understood this. But this is a reminder that God has been faithful to his people. He has brought them out of slavery into the wilderness to enter the promised land. Remember back in in chapter 3 when God promised to deliver his people. Do you remember do you remember the sign that he gave to Moses how Moses would know that God was going to do this? He said, you're going to know that I will deliver my people from Egypt when I do it. When you're, when you're back here on Mount Sinai, that's when you're going to know that I've been faithful to do this. And it's almost, I think we, we kind of asked ourselves back then, like, wow, what kind of, what kind of uh, encouragement is that? You're going to know I'm, I'm going to do it when I actually do it? Well, I need, I need something now. I don't want to wait years from now to, to be able to look back. But here we have in this genealogy, the fact is, these people, because this genealogy actually goes beyond Moses and Aaron, it actually goes down to, to Aaron's grandson, Phineas, who was the high priest as they stood on the verge of entering the promised land. These people could testify that God had been faithful. They had, they had gathered at Mount Sinai. They had experienced that already. And truly, God had been faithful to His promise. And this genealogy is proof of that. I think there are a couple other important observations that we can make from this genealogy. There are certainly many names that we we don't recognize, we don't really read about anywhere else except maybe other genealogies where there's nothing else mentioned. But there are a few names that as you read through there, you, you might recognize. We see the names of Korah. We know Korah in the book of Numbers, led a, a rebellion in the camp. You remember that God opened up the earth and swallowed them for their rebellion. We have recorded in this genealogy Nadab and Abihu, two men that the Bible tells us offered strange fire on the altar and were killed by God for that. And I think as we... Remember these names. We understand that there is a call, as, as, as people that are set apart for God, there is a call to, to follow God in obedience. Moses' point that there is a, a leadership that is acceptable to God, one that, that leads the people to experience God, leads the people in obedience to God rather than leading people according to their selfish ambition. God remains faithful to His chosen servants. He raised these men up. He, in fact, followed through and delivered His people. And we get a hint of that even in this genealogy, what we'll see in the narrative sections later on in the book of Exodus. So God remains faithful. He reminds Moses that He remains faithful 
But he also reminds Moses that he remains sovereign over Pharaoh in Egypt. Let me read for us the first seven verses of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, this is in response essentially to Moses' objection that he's not set apart for God. He has uncircumcised the lips. God's response to him is, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So the narrative picks up after that that brief genealogy. The narrative picks up with God now reminding Moses that he is the sovereign. He is the ruler under whom Pharaoh... um, who, who has control over Pharaoh. And God begins this reminder to Moses with this interesting statement about Moses' role before Pharaoh. God says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What are we to make of this statement? Well, I think for one thing, this is in response to Pharaoh's earlier statement when, when Moses went before him and and said, the God of the Hebrews commands you to let his people go. And Pharaoh's response was, I don't know this Yahweh, this God of the Hebrews. I've never heard of him. And here I believe God is, is essentially sending his intercessor. The representation of him, the manifestation of God in physical form before Pharaoh. With this message of deliverance shows the power now with which Moses was going before Pharaoh. It was reminding Moses that this was a, a work of God. This wasn't Moses going before Pharaoh. This was God going before Pharaoh through Moses. God was going to be the one to do the work. God is bestowing Moses with an authority that is not his own. And God's point here is that he is, he is the sovereign. God is the sovereign. We read back in chapter 6, God's message for the children of Israel was, would, that, would be that they would know that He is the Lord. And now in chapter 7, God broadens His purpose so that not just the children of Israel would know that He is the Lord, but that Egypt would know that He is the Lord, that He is Yahweh, so that they would be left without excuse, so that they would no longer be able to say, we don't know this Yahweh. God is the sovereign ruler and he was working to make that very clear, not only to the children of Israel, but to the nation of Israel, even to the ends of the earth. That he is 
sovereign over all things. This is significant because Pharaoh certainly viewed himself as a god. And as I said, in his pride, failed to recognize the authority of the God of heaven. I think even in this statement that Moses would be like God to Pharaoh is is a bit of foreshadowing to to the point where God would send his own son into the world. So that we, we, we could know God through the person of His Son. And here God is, God is foreshadowing by, by sending His spokesman to be like a God before Pharaoh. To be the representation of God. One big question in this section that certainly presents itself is this matter of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God promises this in verse 3 after telling Moses to, to speak all that I command you. Then the response in verse 3 is that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. We've already seen this mentioned earlier in the book of Exodus, and it's certainly going to be a theme that we're going to see as we move ahead through the plagues, this, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The primary question I think that comes to, to our minds is, is it fair on the part of God to predispose, to do this work on, on Pharaoh's heart, to harden his heart? Is this fair on God's part to do this work in the life of Pharaoh? And even... By extension, we're we're asking the question, is it fair for God to harden people's hearts today? There are a couple of considerations I want to make, and and we'll likely address this down the road and in the plagues, but this section is all about God's sovereign authority over, over Egypt, over Pharaoh, and one of the demonstrations of God's sovereignty, His control, His rule, is this matter of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The sovereign rule of God is, is due to the fact that He is the Creator. This is, this is a, an intrinsic authority that He has because He has created all things and all people. Elsewhere, elsewhere Scripture uses the illustration of a potter working with clay does this in the book of jeremiah chapter 18 verse 6 god says "O house of israel can i not do with you as the potter has done declares the lord behold like the clay in the potter's hand so are you in my hand O house of israel the point obviously is the one that sits at the potter's wheel with his hands on the clay it's is free to form whatever he chooses out of that lump of clay. The clay has no choice regarding what it's going to be. It's all in the hands of the potter to form that which he pleases. And this becomes instructive for us as we move ahead to the book of Romans where Paul addresses this topic and and he addresses it in a way and ties it back to 
Pharaoh's experience. If you, if you would turn quickly to Romans chapter 9. For some, this might be a familiar section of Scripture. Romans chapter 9. This matter of God's freedom as the potter over the clay to do with it as he pleases. Romans chapter 9 verse 14. I'm going to read through verse 24. It's a bit lengthy, but I think it captures the the argument well here. If you go back, Paul has just talked about the, the choice of Jacob over Esau. He's defending God's freedom of choice in that regard. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so what is God's design in exercising his sovereignty in this way? Because it's clear. It's clear from the illustration in Jeremiah. It's clear from Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 9 that God is, is free to exercise his sovereignty through the hardening of hearts. Just as the potter works the clay into whatever form he desires, so God is free to harden the hearts of those whom he chooses. What is God's design? I think this is important for us to understand. Just as we talked earlier about the the need for us to not, not get lost in trying to rationalize why God does things, but just to, to believe what God has said, to believe his promises. Even so, the, the same is true here that it is not possible for us to understand all of, all of what God, God does and why he does it. God is God. God is free to do whatever he pleases. The passage we read earlier from the book of Isaiah, God is free to create calamity. God is free to do whatever he wants. He is God. 
And so rather than getting caught up in the things we don't understand about God, what God wants us to understand through the, the exercise of his sovereignty in this way, the hardness of hearts, is for us to enjoy the riches of his glory for us who have been made vessels of his mercy. God's purpose is the, the demonstration of his own glory. God wants all people, all kings, all kingdoms to understand that he alone is God. It's also worth remembering that Pharaoh, that none of us are neutral beings. None of us are, what I'm saying is, is none, all of us are born essentially with a hard heart toward God. Pharaoh was not predisposed to bless Israel. We've already seen that. His, his desire is already against God and against his people. And what God is simply doing is, is basically sealing Pharaoh in that state, not allowing Pharaoh the freedom to release the people of Israel according to his, his own gracious motivation. But rather, God is going to make it clear that He is the one that brings His people out. He's going to do so despite the opposition of Pharaoh. Despite Pharaoh doing everything he can to hold them, to rule over them, God is going to make it clear that He is the one that rescues them. And He does so by hardening Pharaoh's heart toward Him and toward them. I think it's also worth our consideration that just as God is able and free to harden hearts, God is certainly able and free to soften hearts. So I hope that this reality of God's sovereign control does not become something that leads us to despair. To view God as, as a harsh tyrant. No, rather, God has softened the hearts of millions upon millions to be turned toward Him. Those that were previously His enemies, that previously hated Him, He has turned them to love Him. He's done that for many of us here. He has softened our hearts. And I hope this can be an encouragement for, for many who, who have real personal experience with with people that have hard hearts, that, have, that, that right now, their heart is hard toward God. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child that right now has a hard heart toward God. And, and the encouragement is, is to don't, don't fall back to doubt whether God will ever or, or wonder whether God has hardened that person's heart. Rather, Pray and speak the gospel and love with the goal and, and, and desire that God would soften their heart to turn to Him. Because God is able to do that. And so my prayer is that 
an understanding of God's freedom in his sovereignty would be a, a blessed thing, not a harsh thing. That we ourselves that have experienced his mercy would, would revel in that mercy. That we would enjoy that. But that we would even more place our dependence in everything on his control, on his working. This was a reminder that Moses needed as he experienced disappointment and frustration. He needed the, the reminder that God remains faithful to his covenant. He remains faithful to his people. And he remains sovereign over Pharaoh and Egypt. And he remained, God remains sovereign over all of our experiences. I began with the saying, repetition aids learning. And I believe we've seen from this text that when it comes to our walk with God, what we need many times is to be reminded of certain truths about God. We need to understand and see again who he is. To believe what he has said. And that will aid us in this spiritual walk with him. And I trust that today God's spirit will plant the reality of God's promises in our hearts. And that it would produce strength and joy as we follow him. Through good and bad. When we are tempted to despair and be discouraged that, that we would root ourselves in the promises of God. And understand who He is. And that God's Spirit would minister the reality of who God is to our particular need. And that we would be strengthened in that. And experience joy and satisfaction in our God. As He is, not as we define Him to be. Father, thank You for Your Word today. And even when the picture that we have revealed of you is is somewhat confusing or less than palatable to to our minds i pray that we would realize that you have revealed yourself that you are who you are and that our responsibility is to to believe that. And where that is difficult, we pray that your spirit would transform our thinking, that he would work to bring us to believe these things to be true so that when we encounter experiences that are different from what we expected or we are tempted to despair of of your absence in our life that we would recognize again your promise to us your promise of faithfulness and sovereign care and control that we might be encouraged by that and that we might be able to encourage others with that truth we pray all of this for your glory in jesus name amen